You are listening to Sparking Wholeness with Erin Carey, where we talk about all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome everybody to Sparking Wholeness. This is Erin Carey, and I am so excited to introduce you to Dr. Julia Britz. She is a licensed naturopathic doctor who received her training from Bastyr University in San Diego, California. She specializes in supporting people who are struggling with mental health issues, such as OCD disorders and psychiatric medication tapering. Her passion for working with individuals suffering from these lonely conditions is that she too was a hopeless case, but got better. Dismissed by doctors, she was told over and over there was nothing else she could try before beyond, excuse me, pharmacotherapy. And so was inspired to create myocddiary.com, a site dedicated to documenting the daily life of OCD and related disorders. Through this project and holistic therapies, she found new levels of wellness. And in 2014, did a TED talk called My OCD Diary, An Imperfect Story. She utilizes natural and integrative modalities, including targeted amino acid therapy, yay, peptide therapy, micronutrient therapy, bioresidence, botanical medicine, and epigenetic analysis. Most recently, she was the director of a naturopathic medicine at Alternative to Med Center in Arizona and now practices telemedicine. She can be contacted at drjuliabritz.com. So Dr. Britz, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm so excited. I have been looking forward to this conversation. I know this is going to be a good one. And we're just going to cover all things psych meds, the things that nobody else will tell you, because I think it's important just based on my own experience, based on Dr. Britz's personal experience. Both of us have seen how the medication that we often are prescribed can have a dark side to them. So just getting started when are psychiatric medications appropriate and, and when are they not? And how do we know the difference? Yeah. And you know, this is a tricky one because there's so much stigma on if you take a med or if you don't take a med, it's like, there's, what can you really do? You know, you have a mental struggle and you want to feel better. And then it's sort of like this overwhelming sense of shame on like, which treatment do I do? Cause there's not really one that people are going to be so proud of me for doing. It's sort of like, how are you going to deal with this in the darkness of your own terror, blah, you know? And so the decision to go on meds is a very difficult one. Decision to come off meds is a very difficult one. And overall, I would say that they're incredibly overprescribed. Um, I don't have a problem with psych meds as a whole, but I do have a problem with the fact that most people are given them prematurely. Um, I have a problem with the fact that there's really no true informed consent given. No one's really told like, Hey, this is going to be really addictive. Just FYI. Um, so they don't get that, which is another problem. Um, I also do believe that most people's psychiatric symptoms are really a manifestation of a physiological problem. And so a lot of people that have these unexplained psych symptoms, just because we don't know what it is yet, they get funneled into the world of psychiatry and then they get put on medication and they're told this is indefinite. There's no termination plan. And after years, they've got more and more side effects with, um, I guess, a lesser suppression of those symptoms. So I think over time, there's really no research that says it cures anything. So that's the other problem I have is it's, it's really a symptom suppressive therapy, which is not bad inherently, but I think it's used as a cure and that's a big problem. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I think this is tricky because gosh, for me, I grew up in a community where it wasn't really talked about if you were put on medication. So there was a stigma with being put on medication and maybe, you know, you just didn't pray enough. Um, you weren't spiritual enough. And so your depression has to do with that. So being on medication made me feel like I wasn't doing enough or being enough or whatever. So there's a stigma there, right? Okay. So fast forward. Now the whole world is very accepting of being put on these medications. Thanks to, I think advertising, really every commercial advertisement is for some kind of a mental health medication. <laughs> um, and now I have seen the opposite criticism for being off of my medication. And now I have been told I'm anti-med because mm -hmm. I promote alternatives to medication. So I've been in a really weird position where I can't win either way, either I'm taking meds and there's a stigma there, 
or I'm saying, Hey, there's something else other than meds. There's a stigma there. Have you found yourself in that position? Because you are very outspoken about the harms of, of psychiatric medication. So can you explain a little bit about your journey there? Yeah, it's, um, I think I've been very welcomed into the mental health community over the last few years, actually, because more and more psychiatrists are starting to get a little more fatigued with the fact that their patients are like, well, what do we do? We've tried every SSRI. Hmm. What else is there? And they get stuck at the same time. You know, we do have exactly what you're talking about. There's a lot of professionals and people that are dealing with psych psych issues or people that have them in their life. They have loved ones. They want them to be on meds, want them to feel better. And it really is a balance of like, Hey, don't demonize me or my treatments for feeling better. Is it so wrong to feel better? There's that. And then there's the whole, like, you know, Hey, is it okay that I do what I really want to do? I had a patient just this week and she's feeling terrible on her psych meds coming off and feeling a little bit better. And yet her family is so scared that she's going to feel the way she was before. Mm -hmm. So they're encouraging her to go back on the meds, even though she wasn't doing well. And that's a big thing is we in this culture have a sense of, even if the med isn't helping, just still be on it because we're still doing something. She says in air quotes, you know, and in reality, even if it's not doing a lot, you know, yeah. Yeah. I, I see a lot of people myself who are on a lot of medications and are still seeking support because the medications are falling short, which goes back to your point of they're not curing anything. And I think initially, maybe, maybe we're seeing whether it's the placebo effect, which I know attributes to a lot. We could talk about that. Um, maybe there is something that it's rewiring briefly to give us relief from symptoms, but then long-term what happens? Why do these things go wrong long-term? And, you know, we, the answer is we don't know because there's no real long-term data. So the long-term study is defined as a year in the literature. Now you and I would not say a year is very long, but in science it's considered long. So the, the problem we see is that, so every, every company that releases a medication has to go through this process of releasing safety studies and efficacy data. And they don't have to release that many. And so you can actually repeat studies as much as you need to until you get the results you want. Then you can put that forward and then you can get approval. So they've, I mean, the longest study they've done on a benzo for safety is four years, which to me is really insane considering a lot of people are on benzos for much longer. Um, for antipsychotics, it's a little longer than that, but people are on antipsychotics lifelong, typically, especially when it's a condition where a person doesn't have a lot of autonomy, like very advanced schizophrenia, that person doesn't have a ton of say, and they might be on that medication for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. And we don't know what that's going to do to the brain. And I have a lot of concerns about what it would do to the brain. Yeah, absolutely. Do we know? I mean, because at this point we've had a lot of I know SSRIs was at the eighties when they really became, you know, known and used, but beyond that, I mean, what do we have 30, 40 years of data on other medications? Do we know? It's really minimal. Um, we had switched over from barbiturate use, but you can still also have patients on barbiturates. Um, to over to benzos because it was considered to be a little safer, um, like a wider therapeutic window. Um, but ultimately speaking, our, our research is pretty weak and there's a few reasons for that. Number one, there's, so again, they have to, companies have to release different studies, safety and efficacy, that's important. That's for the people taking their medications. They compare that to people not taking their medications, but they don't have to release data for people off their medications who were on them before. So they sort of have this loophole of not really having to investigate what it's like to withdraw off the medications. There's very, very few studies that say back years ago, hey, it's two weeks and you're fine. Two weeks of slight discomfort, then you're totally fine. Anything else, it's all in your head, you know? <clears throat> so, which we know is insane. But because of that, it's still being taught in medical schools. It's still being reaffirmed in the medical community that withdrawal from psych meds doesn't exist. And actually they don't want you to know what exists. And that's why they've coined it drug discontinuation syndrome, because that sounds a lot better than withdrawal, right? 
Sure does. Yeah. I I had really terrible withdrawals for weeks. Um, and I, at the time I didn't, I didn't know. I mean, and I had been weaning off of my remaining SSRI for a long time. This was years in the making. I was pregnant, um, and taking SSRIs with my first two pregnancies, my third pregnancy, didn't have anything, but you know, they, they told me it was safe. It was fine. And then we recently now have data at what it does to, um, children whose moms were on SSRIs during pregnancy, how it disrupts gut, um, you know, which of course, you know, the, the gut health aspect, gut brain interaction, and can cause a lot of gastrointestinal issues. You know, I mean, things that we're seeing more and more data, that SSRIs are causing disruptions in gut bacteria. So we know that, but um, nobody really factored in what it would do to an infant or, or children later on down the road. Right. Or I mean, breastfeeding, any of that. So, mm-hmm. and, and also like, I do have questions about maybe sexual transmission. Like, what does that do to your partner? I mean, we don't really know. It's a little mm-hmm. out there, but still, I think about those things sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I recently saw, and I don't know if you saw this too. Um, I think it was, uh, Dr. Kelly Brogan that posted about it, you know, cause she's real big on this, on this wave of moving away from these kinds of things. But, um, she mentioned that Zoloft is now being promoted to help with, um, is it premature ejaculation? What? So that in itself to me tells me that that it's, it's inhibiting sexual drive right off. And and that's a concern. Yeah. And it's, it's definitely not the first time we will take a drug and repurpose it based on a side effect and side effects are really thought to be very bad, but honestly, sometimes side effects can be beneficial and we can, you know, like I said, repurpose the drug and use it for that reason. Um, but it is, it does make me kind of giggle a little bit to think of, wow, that's, you know what? Good for them for spinning it. (laughs) (laughs) That's one way. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, okay, I see what you did there. (laughs) Yeah. Now tell me a little bit more about other side effects that we're not always told about that we aren't given informed consent on. What are some other common side effects of taking? I mean, SSRIs are the most common, but I know there's benzos. And then of course, all the antipsychotics that I was on plenty of those as well. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. So we have, um, there's a a group of side effects people experience while taking the medications. And then there's the withdrawal effects they will feel when they come down and they can vary a bit. So in terms of the side effects that I see where people are on it. So benzos, you're going to see a lot of cognitive distortions and people will experience a little bit of amnesia. They'll describe like, I just can't remember I'm blacking out. And there is some mixed literature on the risk factors increasing from benzo use to dementia Um, the studies are just kind of bad and that's why it's mixed, but I do believe there's enough evidence to create concern. Um, I think what's common that people don't always expect with benzos is is visual disturbances. Um, Mm -hmm. a lot of hallucinations, mostly peripheral, like bugs going by really quick is pretty common. Um, leg weakness. I see a lot of that. And then blurry vision, double vision, um, issues with achieving orgasm or delayed orgasm Mm -hmm. is pretty big one. And then with SSRI use, I think what I see a lot more of that one would be a lot more gastrointestinal problems that I think are typically promoted. Um, so a lot of almost queasiness versus nausea. People say like, I feel like it's just can't really calm my stomach down. Um, loose stool or irregular bowel movements, almost where it looks like an IBS, um, urinary retention, I think happens more than people think. Um, and of course, sexual dysfunction is like very high on most of those medications. Antipsychotics, the big one is weight gain. That's probably the number one reason people want to come off of it. And antipsychotics, what they are meant to do is calm down the intense feelings. You know, so we have, for example, with mood disorders and like schizophrenia, the intense feelings, which we would call positive symptoms or like hallucinations and agitation and um, delusional thinking. So we calm that down, but you can't selectively numb as we know, which means that that person's not going to feel a little more depressed and a little more numb, empty, that kind of thing and dull and flat. And those feelings can be also pretty intolerable. And that's why med compliance is really, really poor. Um, but I would say waking is the number one, um, along with sleep disturbances for antipsychotics. 
Yeah. Oh man. That, that numb feeling. I remember that and that feeling of flatness. That's why I drank while I was on antipsychotics. This is, mm-hmm. that's horrible. And it, it led to all sorts of horrible side effects, but that's exactly why, because I couldn't feel anything. And so if I drank alcohol, if I got drunk enough, you know, um, then I felt all sorts of things <laughs> yeah. and blacked out and put me in very dangerous situations, but it's, you know, and I didn't hallucinate. I never hallucinated until I was put on antipsychotics. And that's something that is also not talked about. So, um, yeah, I'm glad that you're bringing this up because I think it's something not a lot of people are aware of. Wow. And I mean, I love that you said that because it's very true. Like we are in this, we have a tendency, I think just culturally, or I'm not really sure, but we want to control our emotions. Um, so we try really hard to do that with external stimuli, or we try to do that with even how we think, for example, if you wake up in the morning and you're kind of groggy, what's the best way to get up is to start thinking anxious thoughts that will give you enough adrenaline to get you out of bed. So people don't know that they're doing it. They just know they're anxious in the morning, but it's your body's way of trying to promote you to do that because we're trying to control exactly how we feel all the time, all the time. Yeah. And, and we don't want the uncomfortable feelings. We don't want to feel anxious. We don't want to feel depressed. We don't like any kind of extreme fluctuation is, Oh no, what's wrong. How do I, how do I make it stop? How do I make it go away? But that's how we've been trained for every physical symptom, right? Is we don't know how to listen to our bodies. We would prefer dissociating. So I'd love to know your thoughts on even the dissociative effects of of medication, because it's taken me years to tune in with my body's needs and to actually go, okay, body, I'm with you. I'm going to listen now. So is, is that part of the medication process as well? And part of dealing with a chronic illness? Well, that's, you know, this is where I think it gets into the spiritual side of medications and there's, I can't remember his name right now, but he wrote a book. He's, um, he was this shaman from Africa and he was a very big proponent for ceremony. And he said, you know, just cause he's came to America a lot. And he's like, you guys just don't do a lot of ceremony. And the thing is, we don't commemorate milestones, then time becomes very blurred. And that creates a lot of depression because then we can't really remember. And it's very similar to how people feel confused when they have Alzheimer's. They just get kind of sad because they just can't place themselves and create a sense of their being in the universe. Um, So that will lead me to the next part, which will all make sense, I promise. But he did write about how he went into this psych unit and he said, I could hear everything. Like they were quiet. They were subdued. People were heavily medicated, but he said, I could hear all of their thoughts. They were still in anguish. They were just quieted. They were pacified enough. And so his philosophy was maybe people are going through this healing crisis and they don't know what to do with it. And they have no ceremony to help them deal with that. So they get trapped mentally and then it comes out as aggression, agitation or whatever. And then they end up getting medicated and then that Mm -hmm. never really resolves. Um, So I'm, I'm not necessarily in a hundred percent agreement with all of that, but I do think that there is something very disturbing about somebody going through a crisis and us just trying to quiet that down. Yeah, I agree. That's, that's a big concern, especially right now, as we are seeing these rates of diagnoses of anxiety and depression, and even things like bipolar disorder, which has never traditionally been a very common diagnosis, but I think it's growing. Yes, I agree with you. I really do. And and then, I, well, an ADHD, how do I not mention that ADHD, OCD? And I think how much of that has to do with being just completely dysregulated and not knowing how to find that stress resilience balance. Yeah, hundred percent. And, you know, we've, we've started to, we're shifting into this wave right now of mental health where like, let go of the stigma, embrace what's going on. And that's, Awesome. However, everything's going to have like the little, not awesome things. So now we're seeing a lot more people getting diagnosed again. It kind of went away and now it's coming back. So now I'm seeing PTSD getting thrown around left and right. I'm seeing ADHD getting thrown around for really not what it's intended to be diagnosed for. And Mm -hmm. so the, and the problem is that if you get a label, 
then it's very easy to go online and Google it and be like, oh, I guess I also have that one. I didn't realize I did. But and then you because you want to fit in the box. You want it to make sense because we want identity. That's mm-hmm. normal. Um, and so before you know it, um, it's like we've kind of manifested a little bit more of the disorder, which I think could be a little detrimental. Yeah, because I think, I mean, let's talk about labeling for a minute, because I do think for some people, like for me, it was kind of a relief, like, oh, okay, there's really something going on that we have a name for. But then at the same time, the way it was phrased to me was that, you know, it's forever, always take meds. You're always going to struggle with this. None of those things were true, but this was early 2000s. They didn't know what we know now. And now people are still being told that. So what do we do with the knowledge that we now have? Is is a label a good thing, bad thing? Where do you go? Where do you stand there? I know it's, it is, it can be a very liberating thing to finally figure out, Hey, this is not me. It's something I have. Mm -hmm. And that is beautiful because otherwise we're just wondering like, how, how do we deal with these feelings? It might, it's a very shameful experience, but, um, and Brene Brown said the difference between shame and guilt was shame was, I am bad and guilt was, I did something bad. And so if we can detach from that and the label can be useful, that can be extremely healing. Um, however, then, you know, the opposite side of it will, you know, we can experience this sort of like put myself in a box situation, but additionally, some labels are a little more, you know, quote unquote, dirty than others. So for example, someone's diagnosed with borderline and actually I'll say a woman, cause it is a heterosexist diagnosis. And if she's diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, a lot of times she can't even get treatment because she's blacklisted because lost psychiatrists like, Oh no, no, you're untreatable. I don't want to work with mm-hmm. you, mm-hmm. which is not even true. Um, <laughs> but that does actually happen quite a bit. And then of course, what people know about it from cinema and from online, it's, it's not a pretty thing. It's not considered, you know, like, Oh, that's a cute one. You know, like, <laughs> right. get like, like OCD, like, Oh, it's quirky, you know, but um, borderline is not cute or quirky. And so that's one of the tougher ones. Bipolar is another really tough one for people mm-hmm. and people go online and they read like, Oh, this is all the whole, all the things that's going to happen. If I date this person, or, you know, if my family member isn't medicated, this is what we're in for. And so Mm -hmm. I think that can be pretty detrimental as well. Yeah. Do you know that when I, it's been only four years since I came out about my bipolar diagnosis that I was given 23 years ago. Um, It's only been four years that I've even been sharing about it. And when I did, I remember I got some interesting messages from people that were concerned that I was no longer on medication, similar to what, you know, you were kind of saying at the beginning, it was, um, you know, I've, I'm stable. I haven't had symptoms in gosh, over a decade. And I, you know, learned to manage any kind of little fluctuation with diet and exercise and good sleep, circadian rhythm, you know, all of the things, but I had a lot of concerned people like, Oh, you know, I know somebody who had bipolar and they went off their meds and then they did this, or then this happened. And it's, that's a very, it's a really tricky one because it scares people because of the, we hear the really big stories, the big, crazy stories. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. And it's, it's so, it can be incredibly frustrating because I see that a lot for people when they're done with treatment or when they've, you know, overcome something or moved past something. And a lot of times the, like, there's a scene in the movie, the secretary with Maggie Gyllenhaal. And I remember uh, that mm-hmm. in the beginning, like there, she comes back and she's done with, you know, whatever she did in therapy and they still have all the cupboards locked up and they still have like the knives hidden. And you can just tell she's like, Hey, I've changed. Why don't you want to meet me where I'm at? And that I see that happen a lot of the time where people will experience that with loved ones and they go, fine, if that's what you want, if that's who you see me as, then that's just who I'll be. Cause it gets really exhausting trying to go through that transformation and then have people be like, but wait, no, no, you were still that person. And we're still going to treat you that way. Yeah. Cause I think what's difficult with psychiatric illnesses, um, the diagnoses that we're given is it is based on a list of criteria, symptom checklist. And so when you do meet all of the criteria, you get diagnosed with the label, but what happens when you're no longer meeting those symptoms, you don't have the symptoms, but you still have the label. So then what? Yeah, absolutely. And that is a, um, I think it's a hard thing for, for everyone because 
maybe that label was liberating and it was a huge part of your identity. And do you really want to let go? Cause then who are you going to be next? And that can lead to a lot. I mean, this identity crisis of like, who am I? I remember I experienced that when, um, my OCD went away and I looked through my closet and I was like, did I pick these or did the OCD brain make me do it? Do I even like this stuff? Like I had no clue who I was without that. And so I was like, oh man, how do I be, who am I if I'm not the OCD girl? Like, cause it becomes so comforting to just understand that. And then you have to transform and be proud of yourself and you've overcome and there's this journey you take. Um, so I see that as a very, it's a very, very common thing. And it can be, it can be painful, but also there's room for this Phoenix, Phoenix experience where <laughs> you transform and it's like, okay, cool. Who am I going to be next? Yeah. Because you're not stuck. Your brain is not stuck. Your body's not stuck. We can find healing, which, you know, I, I do want to spend some time talking about that. And before we get to the healing side of things, I want to talk about this word and I want to make sure I say it right. Akathisia. Is that how I say it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What is that and why do we need to know about it? Yeah, that's a good one. So akesthesia is a type of movement disorder to put it very simply. So what a lot of people are familiar with is the dyskinesia is like tardive dyskinesia where there's a lot of involuntary oral movements like with the tongue and the lips and then some hand rolling stuff. And that's usually what we see with antipsychotic use. But a lot of people will describe this inner and external restlessness um, sometimes accompanied with unbearable anxiety, um, maybe other things too, like nightmares. So it's very similar to what you've experienced during withdrawal, but it's a little bit, I would say not necessarily more severe. It could be, but it seems to be a little bit more focused with this. Like I cannot calm down. I'm just up all the time inside. Um, so it doesn't present necessarily like what we would call in the literature is like, oh, this is traditional akesthesia, which is a little bit more physically movement-based, but, um, and that's why a lot of patients will come in and they'll say like, I have akesthesia. And then their MD will be like, no, you don't. And if you did, we'll give you a dopaminergic drug, which is the worst thing you could do for somebody with akesthesia, um, in this context. So there's, it's sort of this underground term now where, it's being very well accepted online and different forums because it Mm -hmm. describes pretty well what people are experiencing. Um, So, but it can be one of those things where I think it's very important if somebody is struggling with that because it usually is self-diagnosed in that way that people remember like, hey, describe to your healthcare professional like what you're feeling because sometimes the diagnosis you say, they're going to hear what they understand it to be. And then you may be talking about different things and then the treatment could go very badly. So it's important to say, Hey, I've got the restlessness or whatever versus actually using the word akesthesia, unless you're working with somebody, you know, like me or whoever can understand psych meds that gets what you mean by that term, but it is more colloquially recognized. So we have to be a little more careful to make sure that it's dealt with properly. Yeah. And is this something, you know, for anybody who hasn't heard of it before, is it something that happens with, with medication as a side effect, or is it with the withdrawals? Is it part of when does it show up and how does somebody know if they even have it? That's a good question. Um, so it typically can show up if somebody is withdrawing off of basically any kind of psych med, um, most commonly with the antipsychotics, but I do see it with benzos and SSRIs as well, or the atypicals. And some people will just experience their taper. And then all of a sudden it just sort of takes a left turn and it goes right into that sort of skin crawling, like can't calm down, can't sit still, not sleeping, just that flavor of it. So it can be a little difficult to distinguish between MI and withdrawal, or is it just a little bit different? Um, and the treatments could be slightly different. So that's why it's important to get worked up properly and make sure that you are doing things correctly. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. It's, it's not something like you said, it's not something that's talked about, but, um, it is being talked about in, you know, online forums, online Facebook groups, all of that. There, there are huge groups of people who are discussing this and it needs to be talked about. So, um, okay. Let's talk about the naturopathic therapies for mental health. Where do you start with someone? What are some ways that people can start getting into a healing mindset with their mental health instead of a stuck, let's just keep treating the symptoms mindset. Oh yeah. I love that you asked that. I, um, I think my people that do better are the people that believe they can. Mm. And I've just seen it enough times and you can learn a lot by somebody from how they speak. 
And it's like, when I listen to somebody talk about themselves, I can get a really good sense of where they are emotionally and what their mm-hmm. core beliefs about themselves really are. So it can be very, very difficult to let go of that negative self-talk because if you're dealing with mental health and meds, chances are your self-esteem is pretty low. That's not uncommon. Um, so the mental factor is huge with preparing your body for this change. Um, also these things sound very simple, but the foundational aspects of health are so effective. So sleep hygiene is really important. Um, drinking clean water is really, really important not doing drugs is really important. So like, don't do alcohol and and like, be careful with caffeine and like all that kind of stuff. Um, and other street drugs, obviously. And the thing is the drugs, oh my God, it's a whole other topic we can get into whatever, but like all this fentanyl stuff's insane. Um, but, but I digress. (laughs) so if we can get those foundations in order that can be extremely helpful because they found the research that even though sleep hygiene may not actually treat your insomnia very well if you don't do that and then take a medication it probably won't help that much so they found that has to be done in conjunction for other therapies to be effective so those things are like they're boring but they do make a difference and so something i even encourage people to do is like when you wake up go to the window get light on your face as quick as you can just it sounds mm, but it will help it will help um then of course we want to do two things when i'm working with somebody i want to get the acute symptoms under control because we have to deal with that right away but we also want to make sure we're looking at what could be making the taper worse or what could be making this mental health condition worse because a lot of people get off their meds, but they're still white knuckling it. So yeah, you're not using your meds anymore. You're not drinking alcohol, but you're just, all you've done is increased your willpower to abstain, but you haven't fixed this mental problem that you've got of anxiety, depression, worthlessness, whatever. Um, I like functional medicine testing has been incredibly helpful. So when I do labs on people, I'm not really looking for um, like, oh, you've got this disease or whatever. That's important, but I'm looking for ratios and patterns because when you get your blood drawn, it's just like a moment in time. Yep. So that could shift, but generally what doesn't shift as much are the ratios. Those can be a little bit more long lasting in the blood. So if I can get a sense of the patterns, then I kind of know where your body's headed. And then we can have a better understanding of what to expect while we are getting things better. It's not uncommon for people to go, Oh, my anxiety is so much better now. Depression popped up. Like, no, it didn't. It's just, it was always there. You just didn't notice it. And now it's like getting front and center. So it's like chess, like people, the body will make a move. I make a move and we keep doing this step-by-step. So it takes a lot more time than obviously psychiatry because that's clinically based. You go to psychiatrist, like you said, checklist, medication, that can be done in a few minutes. When you're doing a full holistic program, whatever that may be, expect to put in some time and work, but it will be worth it because we're trying to make long lasting change. Yeah. And I, I think that's, and that's where it's, it's good. You know what, if you want to just manage the symptoms, yeah. the beauty of it is, is that's your choice. If your SSRI is working for you and you just want to hang out with that for a while, that's totally fine. But if you want to dig a little bit deeper, see what's going on to cause the symptoms and see what, what can be done to bring lasting relief, it's going to take some time, but it is so worth it. And in, in my opinion, it is so worth it. And that's why I have this podcast <laughs> is to show that it's worth it and it does work. So, um, let's talk a little bit about, um, you at the beginning. And when I read your bio, we talked about, uh, micronutrient therapy. I want to talk about that because I know that being on psychiatric medication can deplete a lot of our micronutrients. So where, where are you seeing the most deficiencies in your practice? Yes. Well, um, and and so when it comes to micronutrient therapies, um, it's something I do think we need to address because of what will happen when the medication goes away. So as the medication goes Uh away, all of a sudden that nutrient deficiency that you weren't aware of starts to get more obvious because Mm. now you don't have a medication kind of covering up those symptoms associated with that. So for example, let's just say you're low in vitamin B6 and zinc, which would help with you know, depression, anxiety, theoretically. And sometimes it does. Um, now let's say you give someone a benzo and that really helps them calm down that anxiety associated with the nutrient deficiency. Now they don't understand that they have that anymore. So they won't feel that until you take that med away, but also that deficiency will have worsened because the medication will have depleted that worse. 
So now we have this kind of blaring set of symptoms that usually mimics a lot of withdrawal. So that's why we can have this compounded effect of urine withdrawal causing insomnia, but also you're low in melatonin because of this. So now that's making it yeah. worse. So we have to be very careful because some supplements, even if people need them, can't handle them during a taper because of what's happening in the brain. So we have to be pretty mindful of how we're going to support that because for example, with, um, like the dopaminergic drugs, or even something like Effexor, um, if we are messing with those stimulating chemicals, we experience something called dopamine hypersensitivity of the receptor. So mm. even though the dopamine is now getting lower as they come down, I can't give you dopaminergic stuff. It will hurt that receptor more. So we have to do other things to help create this energy stabilization without actually making you feel worse. Um, so it can be um, a little bit more of an art than a science, especially if there are multiple drugs in the picture. And um, also people get sensitive. Like that's very common for people to say, hey, I could handle supplements before and now I can't. And so we have to deal with that as well. Yeah, no. And that's why you have, I, I don't recommend doing it alone ever. <laughs> um, that's why finding somebody like you is helpful. I know for me, when I was weaning off of my remaining SSRI, I was on to, I think it was 10 or five milligrams. I mean, I was cutting it in just tiny little pieces. I did add in, um, just on my own. I didn't ask anybody about this. I added in some five HTP because I knew enough to know, well, maybe that would be helpful. <laughs> and it did, it did help to an extent, but, um, I had also, I, I also for about a year before that had, had started digging into things like probiotics and, you know, different micronutrient supplementation. So I think that maybe I had a little bit of padding there. I don't know. Um, but I think my journey with deficiency started when I was put on the birth control pill in eighth grade. And I'm wondering how many people get hooked onto SSRIs or benzos because they started on the birth control pill and that did something to their mental health. Oh, absolutely. Like it's so common with birth control pills, allergy medications, Mm. blood pressure meds, um, all that kind of stuff, because it's, I think these symptoms we see like that are pretty common with nutrient deficiency status are OCD, phobias, depression, anxiety, nightmares, um, poor learning ability, dyslexia, um, even autism, or at least certain types of autism. So we, we can have a lot of mental symptoms related to physiological problems, which could be as simple as like, Hey, and honestly, we're all super low in a lot of nutrients because our food sucks so bad. That's true. So it's not totally a stretch. So if you add on and every medication will cause a drug induced nutrient depletion. Um, and that's why we call them subtractive meds. And it doesn't necessarily mean like, Hey, this is evil at all. It's just the meds require a lot of different nutrient support to work in the body and the body will compensate for the medication doing whatever it's doing. So that's completely normal. But, um, it's kind of like my a classic example would be like statin drugs. Like everyone at this point kind of knows this in the medical community that, you know, it's going to deplete CoQ10 which is part of your mitochondria, your energy, your ability to think clearly and quickly. So people on statins often say, I just feel like I have dementia. Like I feel so brain foggy, you know? And is it because the side effect of the statin or because we have depleted the CoQ10 so badly because of it? And so the symptoms look identical, side effects and CoQ10 deficiency. Mm -hmm. So that's why now it's usually recommended they pair it with that. Um, so it's, it is kind of, it's pretty interesting. It is. And I, and I feel like it's kind of, sometimes I feel like it's fighting an uphill battle because this has become the norm until you get years down the road and you're like, well, wait a minute, I'm not feeling any better. So why am I doing all these things? And then, you know, and then people like me start going down the rabbit hole, you know, like, well, maybe there's a better way. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, it's so important to talk about these things because I, I am friends with a lot of amazing medical professionals, but I will say that there are some medical professionals that are not going to sit and tell give you informed consent and tell you what the side effect could be. And when we're talking about SSRIs in teenagers, that it, that's being prescribed like candy right now, there are major risks for increased suicidality and even, um, you know, very aggressive Mm -hmm. um, impulsive activity on these SSRIs. 
Oh, absolutely. And I think I've been getting uh, flooded with DMs lately about like, what do you think about the shootings mm-hmm. and concurrent use with SSRIs? And I'm absolutely concerned because you, you said it, you know, there is increased risk of suicidality and it's very different. Like there are lots of flavors of suicidal ideation. You know, there's the whole, like, I just can't do this anymore. Life isn't beautiful. Like a little more on that side, but then there's what people will tell me is like, this feels like someone else is telling me to do something, you know, it doesn't feel like their own voice. It can, Mm -hmm. it just, it's like another signal. Um, And that's incredibly unsettling, especially if because your, your body's your home. And so if you can't be there, then like, what are you supposed to do? And in our culture, you know, different from like, so for example, Japanese culture, there's a high risk of suicide amongst young men because the anger goes inward, Mm. but in our culture, the anger goes outward for young men. So we kind of see a lot of influences here, but I do think the issue with SSRIs, additionally to the suicidal ideation is we can get vivid dreams, which can be very disturbing. Um, and that can alter your hormonal state. It causes blood sugars regulation, which is going to absolutely impair somebody's cognition. Um, we can see issues with agitation or body sensations who mm. wouldn't get driven crazy by that, especially a kid going through puberty. So I'm, I'm incredibly concerned to be honest. Yeah. Every time I hear of a new tragedy, I, I, that's my first question is, Uh was this person prescribed or, you know, were they prescribed it and then they took themselves off of it very quickly? Um, you know, or could it have been something like, um, singular, you know, which is, um, what's monolucast? Is that the, the name, the name for the popular allergy medication that causes neuropsychiatric issues? Um, these are just things that we need to be talking about that we're not. And so that's why I am again, so grateful for the things that you're sharing. Um, and what do genetic predispositions have to do with this? If somebody has like, say, I know I have a predisposition to B6 deficiencies and vitamin D being, having a difficult time absorbing vitamin D. How does that play a role in all of this? Oh, that's a, that's an important topic because genetics, we, we all have a ton of mutations. Like that's not really weird or abnormal, but I think the issue is that lifestyle factors can influence if they're going to manifest, you know, so what we eat, how we think, how we sleep, how we relate to other people, all that kind of stuff plays a role in environmental stuff too. Um, so if somebody is experiencing a predisposition to being low in certain nutrients or hormonal statuses or whatever, then I think that absolutely can play a role in how we treat mental illnesses. Um, there's some good studies on vitamin D with bipolar disorder. Mm. And it's not so much that vitamin D would ever really help someone symptomatically with bipolar. Like that's not really going to happen, but I've seen that there's so many, like the, the immune system is so involved with our hormones and how we think. So vitamin D is your hormone system. That's what it is. It's just vitamin D. Um, (laughs) so I do think it's pretty interesting how we're kind of missing that. And we could be making it worse with medications because a lot of medications are going to gently increase your immune system. Most segments do, which feels good. The body goes, Oh, I like that. I'm getting a little bit more. So it becomes addictive. Like your body will chemically want that because it's like, sweet, I don't have to work so hard. You do it. Um, so we kind of get weird vitamin D levels. Usually they drop, you know, I can't prove that. I can't prove that segments drop vitamin D. I just see it, you know, But when we come off medication, it's not uncommon for people to feel like a lot more body pain. And the thing is, if your immune system is down and your cortisol is down, like your body's going to hurt. So I'm not sure if we're making the brain a lot better with that. Yeah, that's, you bring up such a good point. We don't really have time to go into all that, but I do want to mention that immune brain connection is huge. We talk a lot about the gut brain connection. Of course, the immune system is part of the gut microbiome, all of that. But I mean, how, how often can these mental health diagnoses be attributed to something like Epstein-Barr or um, Lyme, or, I mean, I'm sure you see a lot of really interesting things um, in your practice on that level. Oh yeah. It's, I mean, I'm always looking for, okay, what's the root cause? Cause even if we take you off your meds, 
if we don't deal with that, you're going to just be miserable and wanting your meds back. And a successful taper to me is I'm off the meds and I don't want to be back on. My quality of life is better. But yeah, I mean, traumatic brain injury is huge. I screen all my patients for that. And it's amazing. The majority of them have some sort of brain injury prior to the introduction of a psych med. And most brain injuries are not treated like people, even if they go to the hospital, they're lucky if they get a CT. And even if that happens, they don't get any treatment. So we expect the brain, the most delicate little fatty organ to be totally fine just with time, which to me is super lazy and terrible. Um, like if we don't reduce the inflammation and I've seen it, I'll run labs on people and I can tell like, Hey, it looks like you had a TBA like three years ago. What happened? And they're like, you can see that. I'm like, yeah, what happened? Like, Oh, I hit my head in the basketball court. And like, I didn't lose consciousness, but I felt awful for the whole day. Well, I'm like, well, it's still happening. Like it can take years for that to resolve. Cause we get addicted to our own inflammatory states. <laughs> I, I say that very like broadly. So like we're grain of salt there. Um, but that stuff can make a taper really difficult. So we have to deal with it at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. No, that is, that is huge. Um, I'm glad you mentioned TBIs because yeah, I mean, I, I, that's a huge puzzle piece that most are not addressing and it, and it needs to be talked about. I mean, I think it blew my mind when I watched that. I don't know if you watched the, um, was it Aaron Hernandez, that documentary on Netflix, basically after he died, they did, they ran a scan on his brain and his prefrontal cortex was just destroyed, like non-existent from, you know, football injuries, all of that. Well, and he was, you know, in prison for killing somebody and having rage issues. Mm -hmm. And anyway, I mean, I I just, that was very eye opening for me and kind of took me more steps down the rabbit hole, you know, of all of the things that contribute to having a brain that is dysregulated, you know, I mean, I think a lot of people are just walking around with whether it's the brain is, is the result or the effect of something else going on internally, or maybe the brain itself is damaged, but it's all going to be connected. Mm, Oh, it's completely connected. And it's like, we've been fighting for a long time. It's like, no, the mind body is connected. It's totally connected. And so it's, um, it's very tempting to like want to hone in and fix the one thing but we really do have to just get everything in the body supported. And that's, that's what it is. I see it as like a circle versus like linear. Like, I don't want to treat like the one thing to get this one result. I, we just got to dive in and just kind of like, just help everything feel a little better. Cause I never know sometimes what's going to improve. So, and that's the difference between like a doctor and Google, like Google will give you information. A doctor will give you strategy. So if somebody has, um, like, for example, uh, like a very, like I, I told the story a lot, but just because it's, it's such a good one to emphasize the point, but I had a kid with really low vitamin E levels and horrible OCD. And I don't know a vitamin E deficiency causing an OCD kind of symptom in somebody, but nonetheless, we fixed it and OCD got better. But if I were to be a little bit more on the egotistical side and say, no, 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 vitamin E wouldn't do that. Like then that never would have gotten better. So like my job is not to tell you like how your body would respond and wouldn't based on hypothetical, whatever. We just look for the problem, we fix it. And then the body will fix whatever it wants to, whenever it can in the order it needs to do it. Mm -hmm. So it's like, let's get out of the way. Let the body just, you know, (laughs) that's good. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate even just that mindset could be such a game changer for somebody instead of saying, well, gosh, there's no data for that. I don't see a study, you know, like I think I've been told before, well, there's not really any studies that show that nutrition, changing your nutrition can benefit your mental health. Like what? Really? Uh, There's no study for that. (laughs) Gosh, calories, just a calorie. Don't worry about it. Totally. Yeah. That's all it is. Just energy, just fuel source. Yeah. So, okay. So I have a question that I love to ask people, you know, the name of the show is sparking wholeness. So if you could give one piece of advice to spark someone toward wholeness, what would it be? I would say, I, I know it's hard to be grateful for your symptoms. And I understand that because they can be unbearable. Um, but I would say your symptoms, if you could start to see them as a call to help, that something needs to be addressed, then that might be the first step into, Hey, like maybe 
I do need to turn the volume down. Maybe they are too loud, but I still want to pay attention to them and see what my body needs because there are a lot of people that get to be very old and then boom, cancer hits. And they had no idea because they had no symptoms. So it's, it's going to be, uh, it's uncomfortable and nobody likes it, but if we can also, while at the same time feeling, you know, sympathy and empathy for ourselves and feeling care for ourselves, if we can also have some curiosity about, Hey, like, what does my body, what does it ask me for? And start to just listen. A lot of times we can start to, you know, get on that path to making things a little better. Yes. And for anybody who can't see me and nobody can see me, I am nodding so vigorously to that. (laughs) I I totally agree is that your body's always, always, always talking to you and trying to support you and trying to help you find balance and trying to protect you. You know, even this whole idea of, Oh, autoimmune, your body's attacking itself. No, your body is trying to protect you and create balance. And so thank you for saying that. I think that's a beautiful way to end things. So um, remind us where your website is and your Instagram, which is so helpful and where people can find you for more information on what you do. Absolutely. So my website is uh, drjuliabritz.com, just D-R, Julia Britz, no dot. Um, and then my Instagram handle is drjuliabritz as well. So I try to post stuff that's very um, positive, informative, honest. Um, I think it's just really important that people understand what they're in for. Um, but I also, you know, we have a good community of people that are, you know, sharing their experiences and getting better. And that's really helpful and positive too. So. Yeah. Well, and thank you for even, and just honestly sharing your story and sharing your experience. You're not just somebody who knows what she's talking about. Cause you do know what you're talking about, but you know about it from a personal level too. And I think that that's super, super important. Um, just, just for people to, to trust you and to know that, um, you, you want to help, you know, and you do. And so I appreciate that. And so thank you again for being on the show and having this conversation. Oh, thank you. It was really fun. And I'm so glad we got to do this. And I just really appreciate you so much and, you know, getting all this awareness out and helping people like, like us. The tiniest spark leads to the biggest blaze. And I hope that today's episode sparks you on a journey to healing and wholeness. Thanks for listening to Sparking Wholeness. For more information on what I do and my coaching programs, or maybe just to reach out and say, hey, find me at sparkingwholeness.com or on Instagram at sparkingwholeness. Have a fabulous week.